Today we are continuing our studies in the book of First John. In a sense, today's section is a follow-up section from what we have studied last week. If you remember last week what we talked about, the first half of chapter 3, John exhorted us how not to conduct our Christian life. That our lives are not supposed to be marked by lawlessness. The rebellion against God's authority by exaltation of self-autonomy. I get to determine what is right. I get to determine what is wrong. There is no right and wrong in God. I get to determine that. That lawlessness we reject. Yet even as a redeemed people of God, there is a tension often. God has called us to new life in Christ, yet we often struggle with our life in sin. The life in sin and the new life in Christ is incompatible with each other. So we fight our battle against our sins, yet at the same time, it is not our willpower. It is not pulling ourselves up by bootstraps that transforms us. But it is the very nature of God, its imputed righteousness, the seed of God that transforms us organically, gradually, and inevitably. And this transformation, Christian transformation, takes place within the context of believers, as within the context of the family of God. We are called as a children of our Heavenly Father. Therefore, we should love one another, love our brothers and sisters. That's what John has exhorted us last Sunday. And as a follow-up from that, in today's section, John will ask us, then how does loving your brothers and sisters well look like? How do you love well as a family of God? Our transformation takes place as the members committed themselves to this body. This Christian transformation does not happen in silo, but in the context of loving God and loving one another. How does that look like? So in today's section, John will give us three exhortations. How not to love well and how to actually love well and what we are supposed to do when we fail to love well. The three things that John is going to talk about, he's going to first show us there's no room for othering in a church body, thinking we are so much superior than those who are different than us. Then our lives, first he's going to lay out that. And then he's going to show us that your life is supposed to be marked by giving yourself away, just like Christ has given us. Yet oftentimes, we know what we not to do. We know what we should do. Yet often we fail to do it. Therefore, oftentimes there is a deep condemnation in our heart. What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to find rest in him in times of condemnation? So three things John will show us. No othering, giving, and resting. Let's go one by one. First, there shouldn't be how not to love. No othering. Read verse 11 with us. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Well, John, I don't think you're clear about what you're trying to say. Not really. It's as clear as you can get. John said, we should love one another. Who is this we that John is talking about in verse 11? 
he's talking about the church of God, the church of Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. John is not writing this epistle to the world, but he's writing this epistle to the church, the church of Ephesus, the church of Chelton, to us. So John is calling us church love well. Yet, interestingly, the example that John is about to give from verse 12 and on is not necessarily about Christians, but it's more Christian versus the world as he personifies Cain as the one who belongs to the evil one. Let's see what John says, 12 to 13. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. In other words, what John is trying to point across is this. When John calls us church, love one another. But when you do not love one another, you are just like the world. You are no different than the world. Just like Cain was, just like Cain murdered his brother. When you do not love one another, we are just like the world. Cain. So Cain personifies what is world. Cain personifies what is evil. So what is the characteristics of Cain then? We have to get to know this guy, right, in order to properly understand. Two things that marks Cain. One we covered last week, one we are covering this week. First, lawlessness. Second, othering. But let's go from lawlessness first. We looked at it, what lawlessness is all about, and I previewed and reviewed at the intro that lawlessness is willful rebellion against God by exaltation of self-autonomy. In other words, this lawlessness is I get to make up what is right. I don't care what you have to say to us, God. If you read the Targum, which is the Hebrew, Aramaic translation and commentary of a Hebrew Bible, I guess you can equivalent of message Bible, which is the translation, paraphrase, and a little bit of commentary. So if you, if you read Targum in the Genesis 4:8, where Cain and Abel's account is written, this is Cain speaking. Listen to what Cain says, what that reminds you of. This is Cain saying, there is no judgment. There is no judge. There is no other world. There is no gift of good rewards for the righteous. There is no punishment for the wicked. What does that sound like? Lawlessness. Can you think? There is no judge. There is no God. I get to determine what is right. There is no gift for the righteous. Oh, there is no punishment for the wicked. Here, Cain is declaring his own law. He gets to make up. I get to determine what is right and wrong. Lawlessness. So here, Cain, in this passage, therefore, personification of what lawlessness is all about that we talked about. And John is saying, what does this lawlessness lead to? Well, read verse 14 and 15. John exhorts us what believers ought to be, and when we don't do that, how we become like Cain. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. When you read Phileo of Alexandria, a first century Jewish scholar, he takes a look at this account of Cain and Abel and says that all about Cain is stemmed from the self-love, self-centeredness, the birth 
death in the end. When you act with complete lawlessness, having no disregard for what God has declared, and you get to determine what is right and wrong, you are living in the lawlessness, which John calls it death. Love equals life. Hate equals death. Second, what is Cain marked by here? Othering. Let me show you what I mean by that. If you read Genesis chapter 4, there's a famous account of Cain and Abel. What happens, simple plot is this. Cain and Abel both offers up sacrifice before God. God takes Abel's, but God does not take Cain's. Cain initially gets very jealous. Oh, wow, God, you accept Abel, not mine. And then he gets angry. How dare you, God? And then he falls in despair, downcast. Ugh. And he determines to murder his brother Abel. First murder recorded in the Bible. That's what takes place in the Genesis chapter 4. The progression of jealousy, anger, despair to cold calculated murder is what took place in Genesis 4. In other words, Cain, the reason why Cain had to do what he did was because his identity was so constructed in relation to Abel. A Yale theologian, Miroslav Volf, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, says they called Cain's problem as false identity. His identity was constructed only in relation to Abel. He gets to maintain his identity by feeling superior. But when God only accepts Abel's sacrifice, not his, now Cain has a choice. Either he has to readjust his identity, not in relation to Abel, but in God alone, or he keeps his perverted identity by killing him. What did he choose? The latter, othering. He ends up murdering his own brother. He could not stand it because in order to maintain his perverted self, the false identity, he chose to get rid of it. This is not just just anger burst, but this is cold calculated logic of let me get rid of it so that I get to live. What is this? Othering. What is othering? We talked about it during our fall series in the book of Jonah. Othering is the term that modern psychologists and also anthropologists talk about is that how we other differentiate those groups who are different than us in order to maintain our identity. Oftentimes in modern world we live in, our identity are formed by how much we hate those. This is not actually, even though this may be a modern term, this is not a modern concept. If you look at Cain and Abel's concept here, Cain said, you die so that I get to live, I get to keep my identity. If you read Jacob and Esau's account, what happened? Uh, father only loved Esau, mother only loved Jacob. Jacob stole everything that belonged to Esau. Esau tries to kill Jacob all his life, complete othering. I hate you. I don't like you. Get, move away from me. I'm going to kill you. Othering. The classic example of that in the New Testament, Pharisee. Thank you, God, that I'm not like those others. I'm not like tax collector. I'm not like evildoers. I'm not like robbers. I am not like adulterer. These Pharisees found their identity only in relation, thinking, I am so much better. And what is apex example of othering? Jesus Christ was othered at the cross of himself. And what John is saying is there is no othering in the context of local church. When we other those, oh, you're so different than me. You are nobody. Don't you know better? 
that we become just like the world, that evil, death. Church, if you remember what took place in our nation at the beginning of this year, for the first time in 200 years, our capital was breached. Classic example of what othering is all about. There's lawlessness. Now I get to determine what is right and wrong. I don't trust it at all. If you remember what took place this week, shooting in Atlanta. Some say it was motivated by sexual fantasy. Some say it's motivated by a racial charge. Either way, if it is motivated by sexual fantasy, then you just turned those ladies as the objectification of your gratification. That's othering. You just use them. If it's racial charge, what better example than othering that is? Church, there's no room for othering in a local church. You might say, oh, I don't murder people. I'm not like Cain. Well, how much have we had this kind of attitude? Man, if only that person's not here with us. Oh, man, my life would be so much better. I am so much better than them. There is no room for othering. Love equals life. Evil equals death. Which path are you choosing? So John first chose how not to love. We should love one another. How not to? Be like Cain. He killed his brother Abel in order to maintain his perverted identity that stemmed from all comparison that was constructed in relation to him. God forbid that our church be marked by love, not by othering. Now, John is about to show how then true love should look like. Read verse 16 to 18, giving. 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Church, Chelton, did you hear what said in verse 16? Entire Bible can be summed up with that one verse. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Likewise, we should lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is exactly opposite as what Cain did. You die so that I may live. But the Bible tells us, John exhorts us, this is how we love. Jesus gave everything he has for us so that we may live. And we should love likewise. Here in this section, John specifically exhorts us through giving of material possession and also giving not only with words but with acts and deeds. See, I said this many times from up in the pulpit, but let me say it once again forthrightfully. Church, be a sacrificial giver, not a marginal giver. I'm not saying that because I'm trying to get penny out of you. No. I am saying that because that's what Bible exhorts us. In the Bible, giving is sacrificial. You say, oh, if I give, it hurts. Yes. Do you think Jesus gave his life out of margin? Do you think our Christ the Lord said, well, I have 10 lives to give, so let me give one life out of 10. But Jesus said one life to give, and he gave it all for us so that we may live. 18th century pastor, and perhaps America's favorite theologian and pastor, Jonathan Edward, said this in 
his book. This may be somewhat hard to understand, but I'll explain afterwards. This is what Jonathan Edwards said. In many cases, we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do it without suffering ourselves. If our neighbor's difficulties and necessities be much greater than our own, and we see that he's not like to be otherwise relieved, we should be willing to suffer with him and to take part of his burden on ourselves. Else, how is the rule of bearing one another's burdens fulfilled? If we be never obliged to relieve others' burdens, but when we can do it without burdening ourselves, then how do we bear our own neighbor's burdens when we bear no burden at all? Jonathan Edwards is saying, sometimes it hurts because you bore others' burden. Sometimes you don't get to live lifestyle that you desire because you have chosen to give. But that's the very life of sacrifice that John is calling us. Just like Jesus gave it all, church, will you give yourself away for the flourishing of the body? In the end, there's only the crux of what John is arguing here. There's only two ways of life. One, the life of self-preservation or the life of self-donation. See, self-preservation, what is self-preservation all about? I live, you die. What Cain was all about. Abel, you have to die so that I get to maintain my superiority complex. Die, I live. But praise be to God that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was not marked by self-preservation, but self-donation. Have you ever thought about it? Where we would be if Jesus was marked by self-preservation at the cross? Jesus goes up to the cross and says, wait a second, why am I supposed to be up here? I didn't do it. Jin, you did wrong that I'm here. I'm going to come down. You get up here. If Jesus was marked by self-preservation, then I would be marked by self-damnation and self-condemnation. Why? Self-damnation because I'm in the hell-bound race. And it's self-condemnation. Why? Because I know I deserve it. In other words, if Jesus was marked by self-preservation, then I would be hopeless. But Jesus, at the cross of Jesus Christ, he gave himself away at the point of death. Even the time that he dies, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. When Jesus was completely othered to the point of the cross, he still loved them to death. He gave himself away completely for us. Church, is your life marked by self-preservation or self-donation? Would you give yourself away? It's so convicting for me because I'm like, I'm right. It's my right, my privilege. How dare you? I want to insist what I've done right. But the way that Jesus calls us today is lay yourself down for the flourishing of the whole church. Perhaps if you are a runner today, you might know the Tim Hoyt. Um, they are the icon of Boston Marathon. Uh, Dick and Rick is the father and son duo. Rick was born as a quadriplegic cerebral palsy. When Rick was born initially, the doctors told Dick, the father, you should consider putting your newborn in a special care facility. And Dick said in an interview, he cried and cried and said, 
but we talked and we said, no, we are not going to put Rick away and we are going to bring Rick home and do anything I can to raise him normally. It was an easy journey for Dick raising Rick because he's been wheelchair-bound all his life. One day, Rick asked his dad, Dad, can we run on this charity race together? So they ran together this one charity race, and that resulted in Rick saying, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears. Ever since, Dick committed his life. He gave his life away caring for his son. So those father and son duo, father pushed the wheelchair of Rick, and they completed a 32 Boston Marathon together. And this week, after Dick gave his entire life away for carrying his son, he passed away. If you look at the beginning line, opening line of Boston Marathon, they have the statue in honor of Dick and Rick. Church, talking about self-donation, giving yourself away completely for others. You might say, well, but that's father to son. Come on, any fathers will do that. Sure, granted Yes, sometimes the hardest person to love is the one that is closest to you. They know how to get you. And sometimes you have such a hard time. And granted, yes, it's his son. Then can you imagine how much our Heavenly Father has to love us to give up his only beloved son so that we may live talking about self-donation. Father, Son, Spirit gave everything away so that we may live. Do you have this kind of love, church? Of my life, is like, I don't care. I don't want to give myself away. I want to live. You die. That's the way of the world. I am convicted by that. But John shows that, hey, Christian life, loving one another well, it's giving yourself away even though when it hurts. It's a lofty calling, isn't it? As I'm reading this passage, <laughs> I cannot do that. I can't. Jesus, I know you are God, so you did it, but I cannot. My life is all about my own preservation, my own right. Therefore, my heart is always condemned because I don't get to live up to the standard that God is calling us. So how are we supposed to do when we fail to live up to what God has called us to do? Read verse 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. When I read that phrase, this is how we set our hearts at rest, my heart lipped. I'm like, if you give me one thing in life, that's what I want. I want my heart at rest. Take everything in my world. I just want my heart at rest. But why is that so hard to find? Read 20 through 22. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and we know he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. So after John shows us how not to love and after John shows how we actually ought to love, he is here talking to the psychological and spiritual conscience, spiritual feelings of inadequacy when we fail to live up to that. And here... What is the secret? How do you overcome the feelings of inadequacy? When your heart just condemns you because you know your life is just supposed to be marked by giving yourself away, but often your life looks like just insisting you're right. Where is the top secret to that? Verse 20, what does it say? If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. 
Church, God is greater than your guilt-ridden conscience. God is greater than your failures. God is greater than your sins. When you're conscious negative, if you're believers in Jesus Christ, you will have that. You will have the feelings of, man, I blew it again today. God, I just exploded with anger today. God, I am so impatient. Why am I always so jealous? Why is my identity often formed in construction of others? Why do I always have to compare myself to others to live the endless comparison? God, I just messed that up again. Church, when your heart condemns you, know that our God is greater. Know that our God who gave it all for us is still interceding for you. Otherwise, you will never find the rest of your heart. I want this. My heart craves for this passage. As I'm rehearsing through this sermon, I cried twice. Because I'm a God, I want it. But my heart is torn. Do you know why it's often torn? Because when, while God has called us to give ourselves away, God, often my life is marked by I am right, you are wrong. Othering, you don't know any better than me. And even when I repent of that, I repent. God, you said life is not about self-preservation but donation. So I repent. But even my repentance is often self-righteous repentance. That results in I cannot believe I messed that up. I, Jin, who is high and above messed that up. Oh, I cannot believe I messed that up. So the self-righteous, when I don't get to live up to the standard that God has called me, I often end up in self-righteous repentance, and that leads to the self-condemnation. And what John is calling us is, no, when you don't get to, oftentimes you do not get to live up to what God has called you, yet when you repent, may your repentance be true repentance, because self-righteous repentance will only lead to self-condemnation. But the true repentance will give you humble confidence. Let me show you what I mean by that. If you read the 23 and 24 with me, and this is his command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Because there's indwelling Holy Spirit who constantly points us to Jesus Christ. When we believe in the name of Jesus, when we live up to what he has called us to do, even when we fail to live up to what he has called us to do, it is him who enables us. It is him who carries us forward. Just like the father pushed the wheelchair of his son, it is Holy Spirit and Jesus constantly making us more in the likeness of the son of God. It's humbling. The true repentance will result in humble confidence. Do you know why it's humbling first and foremost? Because unlike any other religion says, any other religion will tell you, if you work hard, you will get to heaven. Pull yourself up by bootstrap. Do the good deeds. Serve others. Then you will make it to heaven. It's humbling because Christianity, the gospel, tells you that no way. Even if you did everything completely right in your life, you will never make it up to me. It's humbling because there's absolutely nothing you can do. Yet at the same time, what does John say? If your heart do not condemn you, have confidence. 
How can we have this confidence at the same time? It's humbling, but it will give you confidence because just like unlike any other religion say, they say, you don't know whether you'll get to heaven or not. So you have to work hard all your life to get to it. It's fear-driven. If I have to always say, okay, I have to work hard in order to get to heaven, I don't think I'll ever find this rest that John is talking about. My heart will always be restless. Oftentimes when my heart is restless, it's in fact, I'm doing that. I'm trying to earn up to my salvation. I'm trying to prove to others that I matter. I try to prove to others that I am somebody. But it will give you confidence because Jesus Christ at the cross, even I was that messed up, there's nothing I can do, what it humbles me, he also said, it is finished. Lay your deadly doings down. It is me who saved you, Jin, when you're that messed up. It is me who's carrying you home today. And it is me who will redeem you once for all completely when I come back. God, it's not about how well I'll be doing that I get to see you face to face. Yes, that will give you humble confidence that you need today. You ask me today, church, Jin, which side are you? Often you just talked about like lawlessness, othering, and you talked about self-preservation and donation and talked about condemnation. Which side or do you lean more? Yes, all the above. I see myself the lawlessness. Sometimes I want to be the one that makes what is right and wrong. And those who don't follow my command, my universe, my role, I other them. And that, when I even when I repent, it's all about self-righteous repentance. So I run from this swing to another swing. Now I'm like, I cannot believe I messed up. I am so much better, actually. The endless self-condemnation. But what John calls us is that, hey, Jesus is greater than your condemning heart. Do not give up, church. Why? Because he's not giving up on you. And if your conscience is right, have confidence before God because it is our God who is fighting for you today. Church, there is no room for othering in our church of Chelton. Let us love one another well by giving ourselves away the self-donation that Jesus Christ has shown at the cross. I sincerely pray that for our church and I pray that for myself too. You can pray for me, church that I love one another well, not with just words of my mouth, but the way that I serve, the way that I love you. Let us love one another. Let's pray. Oh God, we see the sobering and gory example of Cain with cold, calculated logic he decided to get rid of his brother to maintain his own superiority complex. And we see so many examples of othering and lawlessness in the world, which John calls it death. But, oh God, you have called us from death to life. Then why? Why am I keep trying to live for myself? Why is my life so marked by self-preservation, not self-donation? Oh God, would you help all of us, our guilt-ridden conscience, to look to the God who is greater than our hearts, as John says in today's text. Oh God, we want that rest of our heart, and we can only have that quorum deo in the presence of God. Oh Jesus, in the end, we look to you. 
That's the one and supreme application we find in this text. We believe in the name of Jesus who redeems us. Oh God, you have given us this lofty calling to love one another well. God, we cannot do that on our own. So today, we sit at the foot of the cross who gave it all. You did not preserve yourself. If you preserved yourself, we all would have been damned. We all would have been in hell-bound race. But, oh God, you gave yourself away so that we may live. What an incredible love you should help us to love well just like Christ has loved us. And if there is any guilt-ridden conscience here, oh God, I pray that you speak to their heart. Let them know that you are well-pleased. You are pushing us forward. So God, in Christ alone we hope. In Christ alone we live. In Christ alone we carry on. Help us. In your precious name we pray. Amen.